You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week you'll hear from artists, entrepreneurs, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. Sheila and Bill Blakesley came to winemaking after retiring from successful careers as entrepreneurs. Since buying the property in 2005, they've created an absolutely beautiful vineyard and some really good wine. Before I get too far, I should note that whereas a previous wine episode with Jared Rallison dived into the nitty-gritty of winemaking, in this one we focus more on how the Blakesleys went about creating the winery and vineyard as a customer-centric business. So I think there's still a lot of new and interesting information here. Specifically, Sheila is a master of creating a fun and welcoming customer experience and generously hosts a variety of events at the vineyard, ranging from a Wings of Her Wine release of a red kale pot to meetups for the women of the Polonet Networking Group. I should also mention that probably four out of five Yelp reviews mention Sheila by name out of appreciation for the experience she provides. Then on the business side of things, Bill has figured out how to make one of the most challenging and competitive businesses, i.e. a winery and a vineyard, produce consistent positive cash flows, which is no easy feat. A big part of this is the fact that Bill has many, many years of experience in running capital-intensive businesses, having founded and run a company that manufactures wooden pallets for well over 30 years. His insights are well worth listening to, and I learned a lot from him. Both Sheila and Bill are great examples of people I want to learn from in this podcast, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So, can you give me the backstory about how you got into the wine business? We bought Blakesley Vineyard, actually it was Quail Hill Vineyard, when we bought it in December of 2005, and we bought the vineyard to retire on. We were going to live here happily ever after. The house was here. There was a little wooden deck on the back, and this was going to be our home for the rest of our lives. We were going to sell all the fruit that was on premise. In fact, in January of 2006, one month after we bought the house, we sold all but two tons of the fruit to Rex Hill Vineyard, and the other two tons went to the Barking Frog, our neighbor across the street. And he had said, if you sell us a little bit of fruit, then we'll make you a little bit of wine for your cellar. And my husband and I, Bill, thought that that was just a grand idea. And so we did sell him the two tons. And seven weeks before it was time to bottle, he called us and said, hey, I need a label. And we said, can't you just bring it across the street in Shiners, please? Because all we're going to do is drink it. We're going to share it with our family and friends. And he wouldn't do it. So as a result, we hired a graphic artist to design the label that had to go to the Trade and Tobacco Bureau, that had to come back to the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, and they made us apply for a winery license before they'd allow us to print labels for 40 cases for our seller. And it was at that moment that Bill and I said, we're in business. You know, we don't know how to make wine, we don't know how to manage the field, but we'll surround ourselves with people that do. And so initially we hired a little baby winemaker out of... You see Davis, she earned us in 2008 and nine two international silver medals. She was a great little winemaker, but we also moved on to another winemaker by the name of Robert Britton. He was the head winemaker at Stag's Leap in Napa Valley for over 20 years. And he had come to Oregon for the challenge of the Pinot Noir fruit. And also he thought that California overprocessed the Chardonnay, which was music to both both of our ears. So at any rate, Robert Britton, our winemaker, actually accepted us as a client. And at that point in time, we couldn't get a distributor that would take us. We certainly couldn't get our product on grocery shelves. And so when he accepted us as a client, we knew we had a golden nugget in our hand. And that is exactly when we decided to go direct to consumer. And so with that, we built out the property so that it would be very comfortable for guests as they arrived. Um, We began building our little tasting room, which took us 14 months to get approval from Washington County. But here we are. Um, We are in the business. We're certainly not retired, which is what our initial intention was to have been. Within two and a half years, our wine club grew from 50 friends and family members to 640 members. Very proud of that. We are so excited when new customers come. Of course, we love the old ones as well because they are the backbone of our business. We know that.
What did you guys know about wine before you got into it? Like, did you like drinking wine? Did, was it a, did you guys go to wine tastings a lot? Was it just a hobby? We knew that we loved wine and Bill, and he'll tell you this story. I, I hesitate to tell you his part of this interview simply because he has his own little story on how he became involved in the wine business. And it's very interesting. I liked wine. And so, no, we, we knew nothing about the wine business other than we loved wine. What do you love about wine? Well, owning a winery, I think, um, makes you appreciate all the work that goes into a glass of wine. Um, watching the winemakers do their job. And for us, it's really special because we don't make wine ourselves, but we are very involved in the blending and many aspects of the transaction from field to bottle. So with that, we've loved to appreciate the work that goes into the, to the bottle prior to consumption. And of course, you know, we all have different tastes and, and it's fun to learn what you love and that we've done. In fact, Bill and I like totally different wines, so it makes life really interesting around here. <laughs> How does that work in terms of deciding what you want to produce? Well, we are in Pinot country, and of course we're going to make a Pinot Noir. And with that, we had so many options. We decided to make a Rosea Pinot Noir and also a coveted white Pinot Noir that we have trouble keeping in stock. I think we have maybe a case left, and we are we will be completely sold out. So we utilize all the Pinot in the field by diversifying ourselves. And then in addition, we, I love Chardonnay. Chardonnay is one of my favorites. And so we grafted some Chardonnay stock onto, I mean some Chardonnay onto Pinot stock. So with that, we make a beautiful Chardonnay. In fact, two of them, we make one more of a Burgundian style and the other more, a little more butter, a little more oak, but not over the top. What makes a great Chardonnay for you? For me, I like a Burgundian Chardonnay, so I don't like a lot of oak and a lot of butter. I like a little more stainless. I like it to be crisp and clean. And at 4.30 every day, I always say it's Chard o'clock, and I have a little glass of my favorite Chardonnay. Of course, it's Blakesley Vineyard, Willamette Valley Chardonnay. It definitely sounds like you could have like, retired if you wanted to, or just have, like the really quiet life. Um, and you kind of, you just went like in the total opposite direction, right? Like you've created this thriving business, uh, that doesn't come easy. That's like a ton of hard work that goes into that. How, like what was going through your mind when you decided to make that decision, um, instead of like a quieter. Right. Well, firstly, I need to tell you that we are avid fisher people and we, prior to buying this vineyard, spent four days on the Pacific. We catch all of our own halibut, tuna, salmon, crabbing. We have a grand time. We do all of our own canning and smoking. So in buying the vineyard, this sort of pushed our fishing um, time to the back burner. And we still do get a little fishing time in, but not as much as we wish. But we both had our own businesses. Bill had a business for 40 years, uh, Billet Products in Sherwood. I had a little business in Tualatin as well, Sarah Gem International. So when we bought the vineyard, I came directly here. Bill only retired four years ago because it really takes both of us now to run this business from top to bottom. But we do enjoy it. Um, you know, we know what it takes to grow a business. And I, I think we'll probably be doing it until the cows come home. <laughs> well, you sound like you're both like really entrepreneurial people. Um, I mean, you both had businesses. Yes. Why do you think that is? Like what makes, I mean, because not everyone would do this or start their, not everyone starts their own business. Like really very few people. A winery. a winery or your business, the Sarah Gem business or. I, I don't know. I think you're kind of born to be who you are. And both of us are pretty driven. We're both type A personalities, which makes it pretty interesting sometimes because we're both pretty opinionated. But um, this has been wonderful for us because we've learned together and we enjoy it together. It, it's a beautiful venue. This vineyard overlooks uh, Mount Hood, 
as you look over the infinity pool, the vineyard, and onto Mount Hood. It's pretty enjoyable. It's fun to wake up here. In fact, uh, people that come to the winery say, it must be really tough waking up here in the morning. And I said, oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, you couldn't ask for a better view. I don't it's think. great. And besides, I have to tell you this. I make Pinot Noir popsicles for all the wine club members as they sit out on the pool overlooking the vineyard and Mount Hood in the summertime. So I'm also a cook. I love creating great food. And so it's fun for me to offer something like that to our wine club members. Yeah. That, that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. I saw on your website, like all of your wines, you had a food pairing with it. Yes. Uh, how do you decide what to recommend, like what goes with what? We have some expertise around us. If we don't know, we ask. If we don't know the answer to something, we ask. We, we pretty much know what to pair our wines with, but it's always great to get a new, um, you know, a new mind in the mix. And we quite fr- frankly have uh, a person that we're gonna be using, using often here. She is a chef and a psalm, and she's gonna be just a huge bonus for Bra- Blakesley Vineyard. How do you find people um, to bring in the expertise? Amazing how many people come here. And, ama- and that's really the truth. We've drawn so many of our staff members from people just coming to enjoy the wine. And I met this particular person through another wine club member as well. And she's become a great friend. And she's certainly a friend of Blakesley Vineyard. So we're excited about that. And also the winemaker is going to be intricate in helping us put together winemaker dinners this year and so it's just uh, it will be a brand new year for us we'll be doing things that we haven't done before it is exciting yeah that's absolutely and it's fun to see the growth factor is there something you think about entrepreneurs in general that just love seeing things grow all entrepreneurs wish to experience growth and success I mean, we're all pretty driven, like yourself. I can see that in you. I guess so. I've got a little <laughs> bit of a hustle, I guess. Yes, you do. Yeah. Um, how do you guys think about success? Like, what, what will success look like for you guys here? Do you know, it's so funny that you asked this question, and I'm going to answer it very honestly. My husband and I are, my husband's 71, and I'm 70, and we're looking forward to... Um, putting together an expert team that will allow us to go fishing again and come back when we want and enjoy uh, the fruits of all of our labor. You know, to see people be successful within the organization will be the biggest gift of, of all. And that's what we're working towards. Can you remind me um, when Bill gets back to ask about what made you guys decide to sell your businesses? Okay. Or I could ask you about your business now. What, uh, what, did, you, did you end up selling your business yes. as well? Because it was necessary. I, I, I needed to come here. We were starting, uh, just starting the winery. There were too many intricate things going on. One of us needed to be home. And so I was the one to do that. And of course, Bill worked five minutes from here. I mean, he was intricate as well. I don't mean to leave him out, but... Um, no, I was just the first one to be here. What kind, can you tell me a little bit about um, what your business was? And, I you know. owned Saragem International. It was a far infrared, it was a therapeutic far infrared acupressure massage bed business. And so I had 20 massage beds in the business itself. People would come in every hour of every day, um, lay on the bed, get a treatment, and I would lecture on health and nutrition 50 out of 60 minutes each and every day. So I'm pretty um, committed to good health, and it was a grand business for me. So there was sadness in leaving, but I am so happy to be where I am right now. Just to give a little bit of context, this is the point in the conversation where we pivot from hearing more about Sheila and her side of things to Bill and his perspective. Here, well, I still have you both here. Can you tell me a little bit about your different roles within the business? Well, I'm more the farmer and the bean counter. Very simply, um, yeah, I kind of take care of the 
vineyard staff, landscaping staff, all the protocol that we have there, and then all the business side of things. Involvement with the winemaking, I coordinate with the winemaker, taking care of all the packaging requirements, labeling requirements, you know, take care of the higher-end administration. Whereas Sheila is more involved with the sales and the interaction here in the tasting room with our wine club and with our tasting room staff, customers, and event planning. I was reading the Yelp reviews, and I'm probably like eight out of ten of them mentioned you by name. Like Sheila's so friendly, she came out and talked to us. It was so fun. Like a lot of them don't scene. know who I am. <laughs> Just behind the scenes. I tell them I'm the maintenance guy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It's not untrue, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so this is a question I think you mentioned and wanted to come back to um, now that Bill's here. Uh, do you have a particular philosophy when it comes to making and enjoying wine? Uh, more just satisfying my own palate. And, uh, you know, we know... Um, the types of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that we enjoy. Um, and we try to craft it that way. Um, I'm not the winemaker, so I'm more the farmer. So, you know, if the winemaker has particular needs to help him get the wine to where we want it to be to satisfy our own palate, then I certainly in engage in those activities in the vineyard. Do you guys both like Chardonnay and both like Pinot Noir, or are one of you more the one way or the other? I'm a Chardonnay girl. I, I love Chardonnay. I love our white Pinot Noir as well. I like the white wines. I favor most of the wines. Um, I, I probably, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty well-rounded and I partake in, in all the wines that we make. What makes a good like Pinot Noir for you? Uh, I like this, I like structure, but I like the fruit that comes off our vineyard. So um, I, I've developed a taste. Um, they sometimes might call it a seller's palate, but I develop a taste for our the fruit that we have on our vineyard and the style of wine that best um, displays that characteristic. Although I like some structure, I like some back end and I like some finish, which a lot of times comes out of certain behavior in the vineyard, but mostly due to barrel treatment. What do you do for barrel treatment? The winemaker makes a selection. We, you know, we use, um, Six different barrels, Francois Ferrer, uh, Caduce, Sigmund Moreau, several. What is it about like this vineyard that has what you like, like the soil or like the direction it's facing? Uh, you know, that's a question that I've never been asked before. We, we, we purchased this property 11 years ago. Uh, more for the property in total than we weren't really focused on um, making wine when we bought the property we were focused on wanting to be on this beautiful property grow the fruit to sell into the industry and we we knew about Laurel Wood Soil uh, we knew about the clones and the rootstock they were all good and commonly used in the industry Turns out that Laurel Wood Soil in the Shehalem Mountain AVA is um, predominant and actually sought after by certain winemakers that buy fruit from the Shehalem Mountain AVA. But going into buying the property, we weren't focused on that. It was more just buying a package, having a view of Mount Hood, being on a vineyard, and it's developed from there. Interesting. How did you guys go about designing everything around the, the vineyard and making it more of a customer-focused experience? Uh, that's a good question. Um, we, because we live here, we wanted some 
certain creature comforts and built them for ourselves selfishly. And then, of course, have brought our wine club into enjoying them as well. So, Sheila, you're shaking your head. What do you have to add? Wrong answer. <laughs> Actually, because we decided to go direct to consumer, and I mentioned this, we knew we needed to build it out to appease um, customers, and of course, for ourselves too. But we needed this property to be as comfortable as possible for visitors when they came because it's a small parcel. Um, we have 15 acres of planted vines, and we live on five acres. So during the day when visitors come here, this five acres belongs to them, and we needed to build it out appropriately. And then in the evening, of course, we needed to be able to enjoy it ourselves, and we do. Um, we made certain that it was comfortable for ourselves as well, but ultimately we knew, as I said earlier, we had a golden nugget in our hand, and we, with Robert Britton, our old winemaker, and we needed to build this out so that we could go direct to consumer, and that's what we did. Did you guys ask for like someone else's design help? As everything's beautifully done. Was it just entirely your own imaginations that produced this? Uh, no, we actually had a, an architect designer that um, developed... Um, a scheme for the pavilion here and the pool. Um, it evolved beyond her concept as we talked more with the contractor that built the pool and we did make some changes. Um, but it, you know, it was basically the concept was done by a, an architect and um, a lot of input from Sheila and I about the finish as far as the stonework and the tile work and, you know, the size of the deck and such. Uh, what goes into making a good grape and a good wine um, in terms of the, what you guys have here? Um, okay, like one of the things I saw was that you guys do like dry farming. Um, what's, what's the impact of that on the wine? Well, we dry farm... Um, of course, when the vines were planted and were young, they were watered the first couple of years. Um, but as they matured, we've got laurel wood soil with um, clay down 15 to 25 feet. So the grapes of um, the vines have found their way down to that to that clay soil, which has got a lot of moisture in it. And we have a very vigorous site. Um, so we just don't have a need to have to water and we're at the, or irrigate, and we're at the, we're at sometimes at the mercy of mother nature. Um, and, and over the years, even though we've only been here through 11 harvests or 10 harvests, uh, we've learned how to deal with, you know, the, the heat of a hot summer versus the coolness of a cool summer. This year, we've got a late summer and uh, we're fearful that before the fruit actually is ripe, we're going to run into inclement weather cause, because um, by the calendar, from the time the fruit bloomed, 100 days later, we're going to be at the end of October into November. And so we're trying to do things now to help the fruit ripen ahead of schedule. What kind of things? Oh, we're leaf pulling. We're um, we're uh, cultivating the grass rows so that we get a little more heat reflecting from the dirt from the soil, rather than letting the vegetation absorb that heat into a, the moisture of grass or weeds or whatever. And you know, as as they develop and the weather moves on through July into August. We may start pulling leaves on the west side, which we typically don't do. Um, we'll just have to see how the heat units are in another month. So, okay. sounds like there's a lot of levers you can pull in this process. There is the bit you can pull. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you about uh, your old business that you sold? I mean, just really basic. What was the business? Uh, like, how did you start it? 
I was in the wood products industry, which more specifically, I was in the pallet business. Um, I started that company in 1972 when I was 25 years old on, um, on a shoestring. And that's actually how I got connected to the wine industry because I started making plywood fruit bins for the Oregon pioneers of the industry to harvest their fruit in. And, um, but I did that for 40 years, developed a nice little business and we sold five Western states, had two big plants, had over a hundred employees. And, uh, that's what I did most of my life. So you were exactly my age then I'm 25. What, um, what were you thinking when you started? Like, what were you hoping to get out of it? Or why not work for someone else? Uh, let's start there. <laughs> uh, it, I was working for someone else when I started it, and uh, when the company sold that I had been working for it, I, um, rather than to go to work for somebody else, I decided I would try to make a living uh, in the little pallet business that I had started. So off I went and uh, never looked back. Do you remember what it was like in the early days of that business? Yeah, it was very difficult um, financially. It was every day was a learning curve. Um, understanding wood products, understanding um, different types of machinery that we needed to use in that business. Um, so it was just uh, a changing world. The pallet business is a service company, so you really don't have any product that you can call your own. You're making everybody else's product for them. Our big accounts: Coca-Cola, Owens Corning Roofing. Brockway Glass, some of these big guys that when they dial up, they want 10,000 pallets in 10 days. You just have to perform. So we were a service company, number one. And um, it was very fast paced and changing daily. Um, has any of, have any of your experiences from that fed into the um, vineyard and winery? Yes, it has. I mean, because of the business knowledge that I have, um, you know, there's two facets here. We've got the, 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 the farming, we have the winemaking, we have the sales and business side of things. And um, what's helped us a lot is my understanding of manufacturing and cost accounting and the business side of things. So that's some learning curves that I didn't have to worry about. So one thing that I had heard, and this is like, I think I heard it as a kid, so it might not even be true, um, but someone was saying, um, like it's really difficult to make money with a winery and that it's all, I mean, it's like kind of a cynical view, but it's just like a hobby of like rich people essentially. So what like the claim was, has that been the case in the past? Like, is, that, is there any basis in the reality for that like historically? And like, has that changed recently? Well, the wine industry is really no different than any business. Um, if a manufacturing business in particular, because, you know, every business takes working capital. And um, that was a struggle starting out in the pallet business as well, because it took quite a bit of working capital to be able to build inventories, to buy machinery that would allow you to compete in a big market. And, you know, the wine industry is no different. It, it takes a huge amount of working capital because one year you're growing the fruit, so it takes a year of expenses. Then you harvest, and then you're making wine and aging for a year. So that takes working capital to hold that wine for a year and then you put it in a bottle so you've got packaging packaging expenses and and you're aging it for probably a year before you release it so you've got huge investment in inventory one of the things that a lot of people probably don't know about but banks don't typically loan on finished wines so if you're if you're holding wine in the bottle before you sell it it's out of your own pocket there's no commercial money available for that and it just takes a huge amount of working capital and then you look at 
the expense of building a winery and the specialty equipment that you need and all the tanks, barrels. I mean, it's there's a huge cost. So a lot of businesses fall into the same situation. It's just that, you know, they've always made jokes about the wine industry as far as I'm concerned. Because they say if you want to make a million dollars in the wine, start with $10 million. Well, that's true of any business. Takes money. Uh, well, how about like of your pallet business? How did you find the money in those early days? Well, the key to, uh, to, to my success was, you know, managing your labor, but also turning your inventory and most importantly, turning your accounts receivable. Um, you know, if you go to all the effort of making something for somebody and you sell it and you can't get paid, what happens? You have no money. So the important thing for me was to turn my receivables so I could realize the profit off what I had done and I could still run the business with a minimal amount of working capital because I was turning it. And businesses that don't manage their receivables very well typically will falter and struggle and sometimes not succeed. So what does that look like? How do you turn your receivables more quickly? How do you get that higher cash turnover? Uh, just the terms of sale. If you sell your product uh, expecting to be paid in 10 days, make sure you get paid in 10 days. So do you just call people up and like yep. bother them until they give that, you money? That's exactly right. You just call them up and ask to be paid for the services that you provided them. Easy deal. Not complicated, but hard. Hard, yeah. It takes a certain personality to be able to do that nicely. Yeah, you don't want to be a jerk. No one wants to do business with one of those. No. Um, that's one of the things I think I heard like Amazon did such a good job with uh, is that they had uh, like negative receivables because they, they got cash up front and then I mean, they had net payables, I guess. So they had um, all this inventory like in their warehouse that they could sell. Um, like their suppliers demanded payment in 60 days, but Amazon demanded payment from their customers in 30 days. So they had this constant month that they could just keep like rolling over into. Well, there's, yeah, a lot of those big guys, um, typically negotiate terms with their suppliers for 90 days or 60 days. And is that possible to do for like a smaller business? Um, if if you can yeah it's possible to do if you can get your suppliers to buy into it and they trust you and if you have a habit of performing on what you say you're going to perform on i did that to some degree when i started my small pallet business i needed a little help i needed terms and uh, you know as long as i kept my end of the bargain everything was good Something that you'd think people don't understand about starting your own business. It takes a lot of work, a lot of commitment. How many hours a week were you working, like when you first started out? Well, the sense of owner, the right of ownership has no hours. You do what it takes to get the job done. So, uh, in my case, I'm a very task-oriented person, and I'm motivated to accomplish things quickly. So I put in a lot of hours, sometimes at the expense of family, of kids, of kids' activities, et cetera, um, it, because I didn't want to fail. So I did what I needed to do. And, you know, uh, that's, I would always offer that to anybody that was thinking about starting their own business. Be prepared to put in as much time as it takes to be successful. Yeah, I was talking to uh, my cousin. He started like an excavating business, I guess, like 25 years ago or something. And he was basically saying when he started, he put in like 100 plus hours a week. Basically, uh, his line was like, if, if you're awake, you're working. Because you're working all day, you think about it in your sleep, so you're working then too. Absolutely. Which is intimidating for a lot of people. But also it's kind of exhilarating because like, it's kind of inspiring to think like, 
you can get it done. Like it take, it's hard, but possible. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think makes some people entrepreneurs as opposed to others? Well, I don't know if I can give you the right terms, but 27% of the population are people that make things happen. The other 73% let things happen. So it's that 27% that drives businesses, whether they're managers and work for people or they own, have ownership. And, you know, it's just, it's just kind of in your nature. Um, and, you know, there needs to be some people that are always trying to make things happen and other people that will work for people and be told what to do and do a good job. Um, I've always just been out there doing it ever since I can remember being, you know, delivering papers, um, mowing the lawn, washing cars for five bucks to make a little extra money. Just that was the way it was. If I wanted something, I just did it. Where, where do you come up with the 27% number? Well, it comes from being uh, involved in the American Management Association and going to a lot of conferences about things. And just those are the numbers that industry throws out as standard stuff. Was there anything that was harder than you expected, either in creating the vineyard or creating uh, your pallet business? Well, I used to think that the pallet business was pretty competitive, but now I'm realizing that the wine business is even more competitive. And and the thing about the wine business is it's it's 100% relationship-driven. Uh, yes, you have to have good wine that people, the majority of the pallets will accept, and it has to be priced competitively, but it's it's all about relationships. Well, how do you make those relationships strong enough to like carry the business? I don't I don't I don't know that I think it's um I don't I don't think there's a set of guidelines or it available out there. I think it's just in the nature of the person. Are you friendly? Can you communicate? Are you a good listener? You know, are you fun to be with? Um it's developing relationships is about ease of talking, ease of conversation. Um, obviously, if you're trying to do business, you've got to have um, a good following, a good rapport. You've got to have, um, you know, um, it's not one way. You know, it's it's got to be kind of open-ended, both directions. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you there's people you can make easy relationships with, and there's other people that it's tough to make relationships with, depending on how the doors open or closed. Is there so much working capital required for starting a winery or vineyard that it would be impossible to start your own vineyard without some other like previous source of money, whether it's from like selling a business or like putting everything from like your day job into sustaining a, a winery business? No, I don't think it's impossible. I, there's a lot of people that actually do this out of their love for the business. They might make a barrel of wine, which is 25 cases. And, you know, then they make three barrels. Um, this doesn't break the bank to do that. What breaks the bank is having to sit on the inventory uh, and, and, and have any inventory. And a lot of guys really can't probably quit their day job making, being in the wine business until they're making six, seven hundred, eight hundred cases of wine. Um, do you mind if I ask how many cases you guys produce? Currently, we're at twenty five hundred cases a year, um, which we have more fruit than that in the vineyard. We actually sell a little bit of fruit outside what we need for ourselves. But 2,500 is comfortable for us financially, and it's, we're able to sell it through the tasting room and through our wine club. How long did it take you guys to break even uh, once you started like producing and selling wine? Well, the first few years, we 
weren't selling any wine. So we weren't breaking even. <laughs> we were putting a lot of working capital into it. Um, it was two years after we opened our tasting room that we were actually selling enough wine to have positive cash flow and could make a little profit. And that we st opened our doors in the tasting room in 2013. And we started making wine in any volume in 2008. So 2015 was the first year that we actually had positive cash flow and made profit. So how many years is that? Seven years. Was there any doubt when you started that you would eventually make it work? No. Not at all? Not at all. Why was that? I just knew that I could make it work. <laughs> I just knew I could. Yeah, there was never any doubt that we couldn't make this happen. We tried distribution, and that didn't work out, uh, and we were disappointed with that. And it took us a little while to come to grips with the fact that we needed to be direct-to-consumer. And... Um, but that, in that, that's the direction we ended up going with, and it seems to be working fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been blessed. I mean, through the toughest time of the economy back in the 80s, uh, you know, the, the wood products industry was a tough business to be in. And uh, there were times when, my, when I thought I probably should just close the doors. But one side of me said, no, not ready to do that. And then, you know, the phone rings, and... You get a big order, and it changes the dynamics of things, and you're back in the chips. I've just been blessed that uh, even when the going got tough, we were able to maintain. You know, this big housing crunch that took place, it affected everybody in 2008 and 2009. You know, we were heavily ingrained in make people making Oh gosh, siding, roofing, nurseries, grass seed growers. Just imagine all the vegetation that was needed to landscape all these homes that were being built all over the country. And all that just came to a screeching halt. Companies that made dishwashers and washer and dryers and appliances for new construction just went to, you know, terrible. And it, 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 it affected everything. So it affected us a lot too. You know, I think our business plummeted like 25 or 30 percent. How did you make it through there? Just tightened up the tightened up the workforce. Um, just didn't have much debt, so we were able to just kind of slow things down, reduce inventories, have a leaner workforce. Just um, you know, made sure that we were as efficient as we could be internally and uh, hung in there until things started to turn around. Of course, we were looking for new things to be doing as well. Um, you know, it made the sales force have to be a little more aggressive, go out there and find new products to be making and doing. Just kept throwing ideas at, at it to continue to be successful. How do you think about growing a customer base or an audience? You know, the best customers you can get are referral people. So take care of the people that you're doing business with now and, and make sure that when they're asked for who, who makes a good wine or who has a great tasting room or, you know, who makes the best palate, make sure they give you a good recommendation. And that's about relationships and doing a good job and making sure everybody that leaves here has a good experience. Thanks again to Sheila and Bill Blakesley for taking the time to do this podcast episode with me. You can find their business, Blakesley Vineyard Estate, at blakesleyvineyard.com. Link available in the show notes. And on Facebook under Blakesley Vineyard Estate. Music for this podcast comes from a ragtag band of spell-flinging sorcerers in space. Check out Cambrian Explosion on Facebook under Cambrian Explosion PDX. If I'm not mistaken, they have a show coming up on September 2nd. You should really check it out and learn more about it there. 
You can also find their music on iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. Find more episodes like this one at nicholasappeal.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast or stream episodes in your browser. You can also get new episodes by hitting subscribe in your podcast app. Also, check out Why Try the Podcast on Facebook for updates on new episodes, photos, etc. Why Try the Focus group is still going strong, so if you want to be more involved in the podcast, consider joining that Facebook group. Thanks for listening. Here's an excerpt from Cambrian Explosion's song, Innocuous Creatures, from their album, The Moon. <laughs>